This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit shalcedon.edu to download this book in PDF. The One and the Many by R.J. Rushjourney. Copyright 1971-2007, Mark R. Rushjourney. Shalcedon Ross House Books. Chapter 6. Christ, the World De-Divinized. Section 1. War Against the Gods. The essence of the ancient city-state, polis and empire, was that it constituted the continuous unity of the gods and men, of the divine and the human, and the unity of all being. There was, thus, no possible independence in society for any constituent aspect. Every element of society was a part of the all-absorbing one. Against this, Christianity asserted the absolute division of the human and the divine. Even in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the human and the divine were in union without confusion, as Schausleden so powerfully defined it. Thus, divinity was withdrawn from human society and returned to the heavens and to God. No human order or institution could claim divinity, and thereby claim to represent total and final order, By de-divinizing the world, Christianity placed all created orders, including church and state alike, under God. By denying divinity to all, and by reserving divinity to the triune God, all created orders were freed from one another and made independent of each other, and together interdependent in their dependence on God. Church and state were alike required to be Christian, but neither was able to but neither was able to be total Christian order. The hostility to Christianity sprang from this obvious assault on the divinity of this world waged in the name of the triune God. As even Vujlin has noted, What made Christianity so dangerous was its uncompromising, radical de-divinization of the world. And Celsus saw this as the language of sedition, Greek and Roman culture rested on the foundation of this continuity of being, whereby divinity was an especial aspect of the created and human order. It is customary to trace ideas of divine kingship to oriental influences, a vague and meaningless term, but it is not explained why the divine claims were perhaps even stronger in Greek and Roman cultures than elsewhere. Certainly, the concept of continuity was prevalent elsewhere, everywhere, and there was an interaction of influences in terms of this common faith. The Near Eastern and North African cultures, which ostensibly influenced Rome, and the influence did exist, were, however, themselves heavily Hellenized and Romanized. Even Judea was, by the time of Christ, an outpost of Greek culture. The Hellenization of Palestine had been briefly arrested by Antiochus Epiphanes, who refused to accept the steady growth of syncretism and demanded total Hellenization, and thereby precipitated the Maccabean struggle. Josephus noted that Greek-influenced education was strong in Jerusalem. Alexandria shared honours with Jerusalem as a Jewish centre of thought, and Alexandrian Jewish thinking was heavily Hellenized. There is a tradition that, at the time of Christ and previously, the ability to speak Greek was required as a qualification for a seat in the Sanhedrin. 
The quarrel with Rome was primarily nationalistic, not religious. <clears throat> Jewish messianic dreams of Israel as the divine and imperial race were at war with the Roman messianic order. Not only of the Greeks, but also of the Romans and all other peoples, it could be said, as Van Til has noted, in their gods, the Greeks indirectly worshipped themselves. But with equal justice, it can, be noticed, it can be noted that in their gods they enslaved themselves. By divinizing themselves, their rulers, state or human order, they created an immediate and total power, a god on earth, whose slaves they inevitably were. One can live among men as a free man, but one cannot live in a god's domain except as a slave, and the divine states assured their freedom by enslaving their subjects. The state is either the servant of the transcendental God or the master of man. The only solution and conclusion of Greek philosophy was the total state. Greek philosophy, quote, had been unable to solve the basic problems of being and knowledge, end quote. As a result, Roman philosophy, based on the failure of Greek philosophy, was pragmatic and political in the main. <clears throat> this relativism ended as in Greece, in failure. The collapse of the dialectic in Greece and Rome led first to atomistic individualism, in which the individual as a law unto himself became ultimate and beyond good and evil. Second, it led to intensified claims for the divine manifestation of the one. Men were promised more and more by the state and emperor in attempts to revivify the dying power of the one. The ruler increasingly claimed to be a god in history, ending history. Section 2. Mysticism But mysticism also sought to give an answer in terms of the one. Mysticism and asceticism, which appeared in Jewish, Syrian, Greek, Egyptian and Roman cultures before invading Christianity, Julian the Apostate was a pagan ascetic and mystic, made history and man's soul made history and man's soul both determinative. The omnipotent one had two all-absorbing faces, nature and history, before which man was helpless, and the great soul into which man must be absorbed. Then, finally, both arms of the dialectic would be absorbed, as the cycle ended and history began another round in its endless cycle, with man helpless in the face of this grim reality. Such mysticism ran helplessly between the Scylla and Charybdis of monism and dualism, between the shattering rock of a divided universe and the deadly whirlpool of the sucking moors of the all-absorbing one. Such a philosopher was Plotinus, who sometimes made matter the other-than-being. The dialectical warfare was basic to reality for Plotinus. Quote, but why does the existence of the principle of good necessarily comport the existence of a principle of evil? It is because the all necessarily comports the existence of matter. Yes, for necessarily this all is made up of contraries. It could not exist if matter did not. The nature of this cosmos is, therefore, a blend. It is blended from the intellectual principle and necessity. What comes into it from God is good. Evil is from the ancient king, which, we read, is the underlying matter not yet brought to order by the ideal form. End quote.
<coughs> this would appear to leave man in a hopeless situation. How is unity possible when Plotinus's God cannot achieve it? The Absolute One is known and attained in the inward experience of the individual. Matter, which is evil and yet permeated by the divine, is united to intelligence by the human soul. Thus man, even as he enters the all-absorbing one, suddenly reappears as himself, that one. Van Til has observed, quote, When we have found this unity, it is not we who have found it. It is that unity has found itself through us. And yet this unity has not even thus found itself, for it is no self. If it were a self, it would not have found itself, and if it has found itself, it is no longer itself. The absolute as well, thus the absolute as well, we, thus the absolute as well as we, must run off in opposite directions simultaneously. It must be pure act, and to be pure act, it must act in still greater heights of separation from all contact with temporal plurality. On the other hand, it cannot thus be active in the direction of pure negation if it is not, at the same time, active in the direction of pure affirmation. But this affirmation is affirmation of pure, temporal individuation, and as such is at the same time, negation of pure unification by negation and separation. End quote. <coughs> in these philosophies, the fate of this all-absorbing one is to destroy itself. Meaning is derived from the creative act and thought of man. By absorbing all, the one destroys all meaning, in that it nullifies every distinction and order before its imperial, philosophical and political sway. All things are equalised before and into the one, so that no meaning exists except oneness, unity. When truth is reduced to unity, Nothing can then exist or be true except unity when the logic of this pr position presses relentlessly forward in its total claims. All law, order and meaning are thus eroded and there remains only the omnipresent unity and a now anarchistic and lawless individual who shatters that unity in the name of his own ultimacy. Atomistic individualism is the handmaid and consequence of totalitarian unity. Section 3. Gnosticism. This ancient, cynical, nihilistic atomism found several forms of expression, one of them being an early form of existentialism known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism has been viewed in terms of its two types of dualism. First, the Syrian, in which the dualism is derived, quote, from the one and undivided source of being, end quote, and the second, the Iranian type, quote, a dualism of two opposed principles, end quote, with man's destiny seen in terms of mixing and unmixing, captivity and liberation. Also important is the analysis of Gnosticism in terms of the concept of time. Hellenism saw time as a cyclical and circular, perpetually repeating itself. In biblical thought, quote, Time is rectilinear. It is a scroll unrolling itself irreversibly from the creation straight on to the end of the universe. End quote. 
For the Gnostic, time is a defilement to be escaped. The Gnosis is a progressive restoration which leads to an escape from time. But Gnosticism can also be seen as a philosophy of self-deification, whereby man ascends out of his fall into matter, beyond time, matter, good and evil, into his divinity. According to the Polymandries of Hermes Trismegistus, quote, this is the good end of those who have attained Gnosis, to become God, end quote. Even as for the modern existentialist theologian, the starting point of thinking is the death of God. So, for Gnosticism, this was, either explicitly or implicitly, the starting point. In language resembling that of Paul Tillich today, some spoke of the God beyond being. Hippolytus cited Basilides' use of the doctrine of the non-existent or non-being God. In this scheme of things, the sonship, the sonship of Christ is the pattern of the sonship of deification of all men. A Gnostic hymn portrayed Jesus, representing mind, as the one who led man away from chaos, enabling the soul to escape from chaos by Gnosis. Gnosticism survives today in theosophy, Jewish Kabbalism, occultism, existentialism, masonry and like faiths. Because Gnosticism made the individual, rather than a dualism of mind and matter, ultimate, it was essentially hostile to morality and law, often requiring that believers live beyond good and evil by denying the validity of all moral law. Gnostic groups which did not openly avow such doctrines affirmed an ethic of love as against law, negating law and morality in terms of the higher law and morality of love. Their contempt of law and of time manifested itself also by a willingness to comply with the state. Marcion, having for a time been an orthodox Christian, was an exception here. The Marcionites refusing to worship the emperor. The usual attitude was one of contempt for the material world, which included the state, and an outward compliance and indifference. A philosophy calling for an escape from time is not likely to involve itself in the battles of time. <clears throat> Section 4. Christianity and the Family When Christianity entered into this Roman world, its impact was primarily as a people rather than as an institution. The church, for at least the first century of the Christian era, was apparently without property, meeting, as the New Testament states, in homes. It was not an institution, but a Christian people whom Rome encountered in terms of the context of their daily lives. The church met in homes, and families were the basic Christian institution. In early Greek and Roman cultures, paternal power was religious power, a power continuous with all being and essentially divine, requiring duties of the father and conferring him with authority. The father, as, as Faustel de Coulanges has shown in the ancient city, was under law, but, it must be added, he was not only under law, but also a part of that law and continuous with it in the chain of being. He was thus, to a degree, the law incarnate, in that he possessed a measure of the ultimate law in his person. 
This manifestation of law moved steadily from the, fa from the father to the state, so that the state, originally the creature of the family and of the fathers, made itself the father and the source of law, with the family turned into its creature. Progressively, as man became a creature of the state, the family lost its meaning and status. Meaning was now statist, not familistic, and hence the family as an institution was especially prone to atomistic and eroding influences. Zimmermann has an analysed Roman life in the 2nd century AD, as reflected in The Attic Nights of Aulus Gellius, AD 117-180. According to Zimmermann, the family conditions reflected are these. Cons uh, number one, is, quote, number one, considering its attendant annoyances, marriage and rearing a family is exceedingly difficult and only the religious or strong-minded man has the fortitude necessary to do so. Book one, ch uh, chapter six, section two, number 23. Number two, Family virtue among the upper and middle classes is such that in a book for children he can speak most casually of Demosthenes and Laius and state that the reason Demosthenes did not have an affair with the courtesan was either price, 10,000 drachmas, or disease, regret. Book 1, chapter 8, section 2, number 23, uh, number 5, section 11 number 10, number 23. Number 3. Children are judging the reasonableness of a parental request or command in a frame of reference in which obedience is purely the individual prerogative of knowledge. Book 2, number 7. Number 4. The Augustinian laws on having children are ancient history. Book 2, number 15. Section 16, number 10. Number 5. The general use of the plural of child, children, is amusing. Book 2, section 13, number 4, number 2, section 13, number 23. Number 6. Trust in friends and relatives is idle and vain. Book 2, number 29. <coughs> number 7. Divorce is laughable and not to be taken seriously. Book 3, number 2, section 4, number 3. Number 8. Sexual abnormalities are the subject of everyday conversation. Hermaphrodites, once prodigies, are now instruments of pleasure. Book 3, number 5, section 4, number 1, section 9, number 4, section 16, number 7. See also juvenile and marital on perversions. Number 9. The Vestal Virgin and the Wealthy Prostitute are both successful persons, but in different professions. Book 8, number 7, section 9, number 5. Number 10. The sex life and morals of early Roman and Greek public characters must be shown at their worst. Book 7, numbers 8 and 9, section 10, number 6, section 11, Number 9, section 17. Number 18, section 15. Number 14, section 12. Number 12. The good is unusual. Book 15, number 12. Number 11. The practices of abortion, having children nursed and reared by slaves, and general neglect of children by parents were common. 
the use of wet nurses from the ranks of slaves and the servile classes had become a disease hazard. Popular con conception held that, quote, nature gave women nipples as a kind of beauty spot, end quote. Book 2, number 1. Number 12. The avenging of kin murder, even by relatives of the first degree, parent to child, was an unusual crime and could be excused only in severe, case, severe cases and by fiction. Kin no longer had meaning. Book 12, number 7 and 8, section 13, number 3. <coughs> number 13. The problem of dissipation of the idle upper-class youth is still prominent. Book 15, number 11. End quote. At first glance, Zimmerman's analysis seems grossly overdrawn and unfair to Aulus Gellius. A far stronger case could be made by the use of Juvenal, Martial, Catullus and others. Why this use of the, of the kindly and inoffensive Aulus Gellius? Gellius was not always in agreement with what he reported. He believed himself to be a good man and a worthy citizen. But it is precisely because Gellius reflected Roman dignity and character that the world he echoes appears more deadly than the world of Catullus. There are no real commitments in Gellius, no basic faith. The basic issues of life are barely touched on by Gellius, and then only casually. The question of fate versus free will is reported with the same detached curiosity as are items of popular gossip. Basically, Gellius was in agreement with Chrysippus on providence that our perspective must be dialectical. Good and evil require one another, for good could not exist if there were no evil. For, according to Chrysippus, quote, Since good is the opposite of evil, it necessarily follows that both must exist in, or in opposition to each other, supported, as it were, by mutual adverse forces since, as a matter of fact, no opposite is conceivable with, without something to oppose it. Quote. This means that good and evil are not ethical facts, moral acts of obedience or disobedience to God, but rather, like God, metaphysical facts, varying aspects of being, and necessary phases of life. And to make evil a metaphysically ultimate fact is, in a very real sense, to justify it. It is not surprising that a moral imperative is lacking in the kindly Gellius. Gellius's real concern lies in two other directions. First, there is an antiquarian interest in the past and the gossipy report of Roman and other customs. Two examples of this can be cited as indicative of both Gellius's charm as a writer and his lack of concern in his reporting. <coughs> Quote, those who have written about the life and civilization of the Roman people say that the women of Rome and Latium lived an ab abstemious life. That is, they abstained altogether from wine, which in the early language was called tomatum, that it was an established custom for them to kiss their kinsfolk for the purpose of detection, so that, if they had been drinking, the odour might betray them. But they say that the women were accustomed to drink the second brewing, raisin wine, spiced wine, flavoured with myrrhid, and other sweet-tasting drinks of that kind. And these things are indeed made known in those books which I have mentioned, but 
Marcus Cato declares that women were not only censured, but also punished by a judge no less severely if they had drunk wine than if they had disgraced themselves by adultery. I have copied Marcus Cato's words from the oration entitled On the Dowry, in which it is also stated that husbands had the right to kill wives taken in adultery. When a husband puts away his wife, says he, he judges the woman as a censor would, and has full powers if she had been guilty of any wrong or shameful act. She is severely punished if she has drunk wine. If she has done wrong with another man, she is condemned to death. Further, as to the right to put her to death, it was thus written. If you should take your wife in adultery, you may, with impunity, put her to death without a trial. But if you should commit adultery or indecency, she must not presume to lay a finger on you, nor does the law allow it. End quote. Gellius is genuinely fond of the old Romans and proud of them. Nevertheless, his interest is antiquarian and at points humorous. The picture of the wives and of old Romans drinking heavily spiced wine to cover the smell of alcohol is clearly amusing. Human foibles rather than moral questions appeal to Gellius. His report about the strange suicides of the maids of Miletus is again indicative of this. Quote, Plutarch, in the first book of his work on the soul, discussing disorders which affect the human mind, has told us that almost all the maidens of the Milesian nation suddenly, without any apparent cause, conceived a desire to die, and thereupon many of them hang themselves. When this happened more frequently, every day, and no remedy had any effect on their resolve to die, the Milesians passed a decree that all those maidens who committed suicide by hanging should be carried to the grave naked, along with the same rope by which they had destroyed themselves. <clears throat> After that decree, the maidens seeked to cease a voluntary death, deterred by the mere shame of so disgraceful a burial. End quote. This is Gellius, a kindly, curious observer who views virtue with friendly eyes and a ready humour and vice with a kindly awareness that it is a condition of life. Because good and evil are metaphysically ultimate for him, a crusade against evil is an exercise in futility. In this perspective, it is inevitable that social ethics becomes a matter of poise and manners rather than good and evil. Second, when religion wanes, words lose their basic context of meaning, which is theological, and semantics takes over in a futile attempt to provide meaning. It is not surprising that Gellius is more interested in the meaning of words than in morality. The basis of community and communication is a common world of faith and meaning. When that religious structure is eroded, language too is eroded, and semantics embarks on the sterile task of trying to salvage or analyse words rather than the religious, metaphysical, epistemological and ethical task of establishing a new world meaning. Gellius's antiquarianism and semanticism were thus different aspects of a single factor and were equally ineffectual. The Julian family law was, for similar reasons, mainly impotent with respect to Rome. It could not replace by law what had been removed by unbelief, cynicism and relativism. The Augustan and Julian legal program was far more influential in subsequent Christian states than in Rome. 
The Christian family in the Roman Empire was clearly an alien institution. <clears throat> Living within a totalitarian, unitary state, it moved in terms of a law which had no standing in Rome, God's law as revealed in the Old and New Testaments. Rome recognised various national traditions and legalised them as subordinate aspects of imperial law. Christian family life, however, respectful of Roman law, moved clearly in terms of a law claiming priority to Rome, and, indeed, granting tolerance by way of commanding obedience to it. Romans 13. Christians could defend their position as an obedient, law-abiding people, but their defence was obviously offensive. Rome claimed the right to establish the gods and religions, but the Christians obeyed because they declared their god had established Rome and commanded obedience to civil authorities. A more direct assault on the fundamental principle of Roman law is hard to imagine. Whether the God of the Christians commanded obedience or rebellion, the principle of the priority of his law and his right to ordain and to recognise was clearly treasonable, and many emperors felt that persecution for obliteration was necessary in order to remove this threat to their power and position. It is possible, too, that Lewinson's comment may have been true in its account of the Roman reaction. Quote, the moral teaching of the Christian missionaries sounded like a criticism of the private life of the imperial family, an attack on Roman law and on the morals of Roman society. The upper classes did not, indeed, let it worry them, but since this foreign sect won certain adherents among the pro proletariat, the police smelt a rat. Persons propagating and accepting such doctrines were capable of anything, even of deliberate subversion of the Roman Empire. The Inquisition set foot against the Christians. The, sorry, the Inquisition set on foot against the Christians after the burning of Rome in July A.D. 64. Yet yielded the Inquisition yielded no evidence that they had been responsible for the fire, but they were, as Tacitus reports, found guilty of hatred against humankind. <clears throat> This was ground enough for organising a massacre of them. End quote. It should be noted that Tacitus suspected Nero of ordering the fire. Quote, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. End quote. An immense multitude of Christians was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, as of hatred of mankind. The hatred of the Christians is apparent in Tacitus's paragraph, and their separateness is the ground of their offence as haters of humanity. The Christian concept of law, as revealed in its simple family life, made it clear that true Christians could not be assimilated into the empire. Section 5. Abortion. This Christian law with respect to the family appeared very quickly with respect to abortion. Plato had sanctioned abortion when conception took place past the age limits of the state-controlled procreation because, quote, it was an offence against religion and justice inasmuch as he is raising up a child for the state, end quote. 
As this statement clearly shows, religion and justice are set in the context of the state and its desires. Aristotle also required abortion when state-allowed births were exceeded. In Rome, Septimius Severus and Antoninus prohibited abortion, not as intrinsically immoral or as murder, but on the ground that it defrauded the husband. For Plato and Aristotle, it was a matter of state law entirely. Rome saw abortion in the context of the father's right to an heir, so that the validity of abortion stood or fell in terms of that right. The condemnation of abortion as murder was quickly evidence in Christian circles. In a collection of rules and comments, we read, quote, Thou shalt not slay thy child by causing abortion, nor kill that which is begotten, for everything that is shaped and has received a soul from God, if it be slain, shall be avenged, as being unjustly destroyed. From Exodus 21:23, LXX, the Septuagint. End quote. <clears throat> Tertullian declared, quote, To hinder a birth is merely a speedier man-killing, nor does it matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to the birth. That is a man which is going to be one. You have the fruit already in its seed. End quote. The church councils repeatedly dealt with abortion. Canon 21st of the Council of Ancyra stated, quote, Concerning women who commit fornication and destroy that which they have conceived, or who are employed in making drugs for abortion, a former decree excluded them until the hour of death, and to this some have assented. Nevertheless, being desirous to use somewhat greater lenity, we have ordained that they fulfil ten years of penance according to the prescribed degrees." It is not our purpose here to analyse the development of the penitential system or the changing ideas of it within the Church, but simply to note that the law of murder with respect to abortion was applied severely to converts who had been prostitutes and abortionists and barred them from full communion for ten years. Basil of Caesarea in Cappadocia, in his canons, held to the same requirement. Basil called abortion murder and declared also, Quote, that a woman being delivered of a child in a journey and taking no care of it shall be reputed guilty of murder. End quote. In the Quintessext Council of 692, Canon XCI declared quote, Those who give drugs for procuring abortion and those who receive poisons to kill the fetus are subjected to the penalty for murder. End quote. Abortion was murder, suicide was murder, and self-mutilation was murder. Anyone who mutilated himself was subjected to excommunication if a layman, and deposition as well if a clergyman. For the Christians, the only open question here was administrative. God's law was final and absolute. A man's life was not his own, nor his body, nor the life of his unborn child. To tamper with these things was to sin against God. It meant attempting to play God with life. And all life and all creation was subject to man only under God's infallible word and law. 
The Roman conception of the priority of the state was hence anathema. It was a part of that sin from which men were to be saved, the attempt to be gods. The Roman position has since revived has since revived among sociologists, politicians, and modernist clergymen. A sociologist has written, quote, A demand for abortion is frequently viewed as a type of social deviance, and indeed, most responsible physicians insist it should be satisfied only as a last resort. Yet social engineers should realise that at times abortion can be a vital instrument of social control, preventing serious family disorganisation, economic hardship and diminution of physical health. Recognition of this possibility by legislators may play an important role in fostering social and economic reform. End quote. The key clause in this statement is this, quote, Social engineers should realise that at times abortion can be a vital instrument of social control. End quote. This precisely pinpoints the difference. Social control by man, playing at God, is the goal, on the one hand, and obedience to God's law is the requirement on the other. For this reason, the priority of God and his word, the Christian family, while sharply stronger than the non-Christian families in its environment, by no means resembled the conservative family of old Rome or of any other era. The loyalty was not to the family and to the authority of the father, but to God. This was clearly apparent in the first eyewitness account of the Christian martyrdom, the death in the era the death in the arena of a young woman, Perpetua, on March the 7th, 203, at Carthage. Perpetua was a young mother of 22, of a noble family, with an infant son at her breast, and her breasts heavy with milk. We have her own account of the trial. Quote, Then my turn came, and my father appeared on the scene with my boy, and drew me down from the step, praying to me, Pity thy child! Then Hilarion the procurator, who was at that time administering the government in the place of the proconsul Minucius Timonianus, deceased, said, Spare thy father's grey hairs, spare thy infant boy, sacrifice for the safety of the emperor. And I replied, I do not sacrifice. Art thou a Christian? asked Hilarion. And I said, I am. And when my father persisted in endeavouring to make me recant, he was, he was ordered down by Hilarion and beaten with a rod. And I felt it as keenly as though I had been struck myself, and I was sorry for his miserable old age. End quote. Much as she loved her father, husband and son, her God, rather than her family, came first in this situation. Section 6 Emperor worship. The question of emperor worship is central here. The statement of Hilarion to Perpetua is an interesting one. Sacrifice for the safety of the emperor. It would be absurd to maintain that at any time Rome feared for its safety in the threat of a Christian uprising. On the contrary, the excellent character of the Christians was, despite some slanders, well recognised by the emperors. The danger was religious and philosophical. 
the entire theoretical and legal foundation of the emperor and the empire was threatened by the Christian de-divinization of this world. The imperial sacrifices represented the recognition, whatever other gods one held to, of the centrality of the emperor and the Roman state in divinity of being. The central direction and intelligence of being moved in the development, power and authority of the emperor and Rome. As Perun has noted, quote, refusal to sacrifice amounted to a refusal to obey an order of the emperor, and as such was accounted as treason, for which the punishment was death. The object of the state was not to eradicate the Christians, but to reform them, end quote. Or, failing to reform them, then to exterminate them. The excellence of the Christian character marked them all the more as a dangerous and powerful alien power within the state. The slanderous stories invented concerning Christians reflected not only hatred and malice, but also the firm belief that a people who denied the divinity of emperor and state were probably such wild anarchists that they also practiced incest and cannibalism. But the Christians? Quote, While they were ready and anxious to pray for Caesar, and, as their master had taught them, to render unto him the things which were his, they refused to pray to him. End quote. The imperial cult was ready to be syncretistic, ready to absorb other religions into itself and into the framework of the empire. Orthodox Christianity was militantly hostile to any compromise in principle. Divinity in the Roman faith was, first of all, continuous with all being, and thus it could be manifested everywhere and in diverse forms. Second, it was being in process, developing steadily and evolving. Receptivity to new movements was hence a religious necessity, the new movements being evaluated, digested and put to use in terms of their utility to the idea of Rome. The reason for the long survival of Rome was precisely this readiness to adopt each new movement or revolution as a part of the meaning of Rome. As a result, Rome underwent a series of revolutions, from monarchy to republic to empire, and thereafter especially, was in continual revolution as an empire, all of which left Rome sometimes in great self-contradiction to its yesterdays, but faithful to eternal, divine and evolving Rome. Rome destroyed Carthage as a state in 146 BC, but in time a Punic emperor, Septimius Severus, proud of his ancestry and speaking Greek and Latin with a Punic accent, came to rule in Rome. Came to rule Rome. He disdained to take even a Roman woman to wife, marrying rather Julia Donna of his own race and the daughter of a prince-priest. He was, by adoption, made an Antonine, and he was steadily promoted by the Romans, who a few centuries before had destroyed his country, but he was now a part of the ever-new and yet eternal Rome. Rome was continually transforming itself, while remaining always divine Rome, ready also to absorb the Christians and use them if they would be absorbed. But the Orthodox Christians rejected all compromise. Their God, the ontological trinity, being, sovereign, omnipotent and transcendent, needed nothing to complete himself. As uncreated being, 
All the universe, as created being, was his handiwork. Creation could not exist without God or apart from him, whereas God made it clear that he needed nothing to complete himself. Man could contribute nothing to him, nor could man contribute to his own salvation. God created, sustained and redeemed man. Sovereignty being entirely transcendental, no human order could claim any authority apart from or beyond God's sovereign word. And God, being perfect, complete and totally self-conscious, his word was accordingly final, infallible and sufficient for man's salvation. Man's reason, therefore, is not creative, but analogical, thinking God's thoughts after him. Man's work cannot save him, nor can they add anything to God. This is true of the elect. How much more so the works of an unbelieving empire? <clears throat> Man must render God obedience and give him all glory, acknowledging that in him all power, glory and dominion reside. There was no lack of Christian philosophy, but there was a rejection of a mottled or syncretistic philosophy. When such mottled philosophies appeared, the philosophers were not always aware of their compromise. They were trying to defend the faith and assert the antithesis. Their Greek and Roman education often coloured their apologetics, but their purpose was to assert an antithesis, and even Oregon was ready to endure persecution for that antithesis. Tertullian, in a famous passage, sharply stated this faith in the sufficiency of the scripture, the rejection of compromise and the rejection of, quote, dialectics, the art of building up and pulling down, an art so evasive in its pro propositions, so far-fetched in its conjectures, so harsh in its arguments, so productive of contentions, embarrassing even to itself, retracting everything and really treating of, in the sense of conclusively settling, nothing, end quote. Thus, declared Tertullian, a line of division must be drawn between this pagan philosophy and the, the Christian faith. Quote, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Our instruction comes from the porch of Solomon, who had himself taught that the Lord should be sought in simplicity of heart. Away with all attempts to produce a mottled Christianity of Stoic, Platonic and dialectic composition. We want no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus, no inquisition after enjoying the gospel. With our faith we desire no further belief, for this is our palmary faith, that there is nothing which we ought to believe besides. End quote. This passage was not without a lengthy history in the church and an extensive influence on the minds of a very different perspective than Tertullian. Thus, Robert South, 1633-1716, in his sermon of November 9, 1662, at St. Paul, of the creation of man in the image of God, declared, quote, All those arts, rarities, and inventions which vulgar minds gaze at the ingenious pursue and all admire are but the relics of an intellect defaced with sin and time. We admire it now, only as antiquaries do, a piece of old coin. For the stamp it once bore, 
and not for those vanishing lineaments and disappearing drafts that remain upon it at present. And certainly, that must needs have been very glorious, the decays of which are so admirable. He that is comely when old and decrepit surely was very beautiful when he was young, and Aristotle was but the rubbish of an Adam when he was young, and Aristotle was but the rubbish of an Adam, and Athens but the rudiments of paradise. End quote. <clears throat> Tertullian recognized Christian philosophy because it came from the porch of Solomon, but he rejected all others, specifying the Sto especially the Stoics, Platonists, and Aristotelians' dialectic composition. This uncompromising perspective required not only a surrender by pagan philosophies, but also a surrender to God by the pagan state. Neither a divine nor an autonomous existence was permitted to any man or institution. All must recognise themselves to be a part of the created order, dependent upon God and subject to his word. This submission was mandatory for all, for church, state, school, home, and for every person and institution. Every knee must bend to the triune God or be judged by him. This was a treasonable faith to Rome. Rome claimed to be that canopy under which all institutions and being within its jurisdiction found themselves and from whence they derived their legal existence. In Rome, whoever or whatever was capable and being subject to rights, and being subject to rights was a persona or legal person, whether an individual or a group. Thus, Rome decreed who or what was a person and had rights. But the church claimed to be the body of Jesus Christ and to have rights derived directly from God and not subject to the jurisdiction of the state. Every Christian family insisted on exercising rights with respect to worship and obedience to God in their everyday lives which were not subject to state jurisdiction because those rights were derived from God and his word. The Christian, as an individual, and in his institutions, claimed to be a person in virtue of God's word. He insisted on obedience to the state within the framework prescribed by scripture, so that he derived right and person not from Rome, but from God, and Rome's right and person were themselves derived from God and his word. Thus, even in their obedience, the Christians had struck a death blow against Rome and the idea of Rome. <clears throat> the church and the individual Christian, as independent realms alike under God, together with Rome, and the Christian under God only, in obedience to God, represented an empire within an empire. Rome very quickly recognised this challenge to its existence. Section 7. Creation and History the sharp difference between the Christian and the non-Christian perspectives rested extensively and basically on the doctrine of creation. All non-biblical non cosmogenies, according to Kiel and Delich, quote, are either hilozoistical, deducing the origin of life and living beings from some primeval matter, or pantheistical, regarding the whole world as emanating from a common divine substance 
or mythological, tracing both gods and men to a chaos or world egg. They do not even rise to the notion of a creation, much less to the knowledge of an almighty God as the creator of all things. End quote. The consequences of this non-biblical perspective are far-reaching. In this concept, being is evolving and is in process. Because being is in process, and being is seen as one and undivided, truth itself is tentative, evolving, and without finality. <clears throat> since being has not yet assumed a final form, since the universe is in process and not yet a finished product, truth itself is in process and continually changing. A new movement, or leap in being, can give man a new truth and render yesterday's truth a lie, but in, order, but in an order created by a perfect, omnipotent and totally self-conscious being, God, truth is both final, specific and authoritative. God's word can then be, and is inevitably, infallible, because there is nothing tentative about God himself. Moreover, truth is ultimately personal, because the source, God, is personal, and truth becomes incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ and is communicated to those who believe in him. Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, as the way, the truth and the life, is also the Christian principle of continuity. The Christian doctrine, therefore, involved a radical break with the pagan doctrine of the continuity of being and with the doctrine of chaos. It also involved a break with the other aspect of the dialectic, the pagan, rationalistic concept of order. Order is not the work of autonomous and developing gods and men, but rather the sovereign decree of the omnipotent God. This faith freed man from the sterile autonomy which made him the helpless prisoner of fate, of the relentless workings of a blind order. Even so, weak a Christian thinker as Tatian the Assyrian saw this, declaring, quote, But we are superior to fate, and instead of wandering demons, we have learned to know one Lord who wanders not, and as we do not follow the guidance of fate, we reject its lawgivers. The result was a radically new philosophy of history, one in which all creation, physical and human, is governed by the personal laws of the personal God. Cochrane has described this new concept of history thus, quote, But if this be history, it is history in a sense wholly without parallel in secular literature, for it is neither economic nor cultural nor political, local and particularist or general and cosmopolitan, it deals neither with problems of war and peace, nor with those of competition and cooperation, and it does not concern itself in the least with the search for causes. What it offers is an account of human freedom, its original loss through the first Adam, and its ultimate recovery through the second. This it presents in the form of a cosmic drama, but the drama is not Promethean, it tells no story of virtue in conflict with chance or necessity, for with the disappearance from Christian thought of the classical antithesis between man and the environment, there disappears also the possibility of such a conflict. The destiny of man is, indeed, determined, 
but neither by a soulless mechanism nor by the fiat of an arbitrary or capricious power external to himself. For the laws which govern physical, like those which govern human nature, are equally the laws of God. End quote. <clears throat> the Greco-Roman view of history was cyclical. The order of history periodically returned to chaos in order to affect a new being, and the entire order of the universe also made this periodic return to total chaos in order to begin again as its ascent to order. The energy of being required the energy of being required the regular cyclical refreshing of rest and revitalization in chaos in order to begin anew its upward strain into order. These cycles, in Augustine's words, will ceaselessly recur as a constant renewal and repetition of the order of nature. The soul of man, with a ceaseless transmigration, is also subjected to this cycle. No true believer can accept this cyclical view of history. History moves, as the city of God was written to demonstrate, in terms of God's predestination, in terms of his plan. Our problem is not history's cycles, but sin. And because Christ died for our sins, a once and final act, the dominion of sin and death is broken. The wicked walk in a circle, but it is not a cycle of history, but rather the circle of false doctrine. What wonder is it if, entangled in these circles, they find neither entrance nor egress? There was a beginning to creation, and a beginning to time, in terms of the sovereign decree and act of God. Moreover, Augustine held, the movements which are the basis of time do pass from future to past. This is a concept of momentous importance. The past is chronologically prior to the future, but it is not logically so. Since God is the totally self-conscious and omnipotent creator of all things, he knows and ordains the end and the beginning. As was declared at the Council of Jerusalem, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Acts 15.18 <clears throat> The events proceed from the determined ends and purposes of God, so that the movement of time is from future to past. This fact has been well stated by a modern writer. Quote, Never does yesterday turn back in its flight and become today, or today become tomorrow. Never does the past, never does the past pass into the present, or the present into the future. No, it is the other way. Tomorrow becomes today. Today becomes yesterday. The future becomes the present. The present becomes the past. The future is the source. It is the reservoir of time which will someday be present and then past. The present is the narrow strait. It is the living instant. It is the flashing reality through which the vast oncoming future flows into the endless receding past. The future is logically first, but not chronologically. The past issues. It proceeds from the future through the present. End quote. The direction of this chronological movement and its purpose is made known to us by God, who decreed it in his word, in which, Salvian declared, 
God testifies that he himself performs and ordains all things. This fact is for Salvian the full explanation of reality. For, quote, just as God is greater than all human reason, in like manner it should mean more to me than reason that I recognize that all things are done by God. There is no need to listen to anything new on this point. Let God alone, the Creator, be sufficient over the reasoning of all men. End quote. God's word is sufficient for Salvian as he seeks to understand history. Quote, when we read that he rules all things he has created, we prove thereby that he rules, since he testifies that he rules. End quote. Scripture speaks with clarity, and the very words of Holy Scripture are the mind of God. Section 8. History and God. Thus, the genius of history, that is, its tutelar deity in the Roman sense, was not Caesar, but Jesus Christ, whose word declared the purpose of history. When the Roman officials demanded, as they did of Polycarp and other Christian martyrs, an offering of incense to the emperor, declaring, swear by the genius of Caesar, and repeat and say, away with the atheists, they were declaring that the God, and in a sense almost the fortune of Rome, was the emperor. To deny him worship was to deny Rome and the meaning of its history and existence. An atheist was one who disbelieved or denied Caesar as this genius. Polycarp's answer was to say, raising his eyes toward heaven, away with the atheists. For Polycarp, the real atheists were these persecuting Romans. They denied history in denying Christ. For all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. From John 1, 3. History, according to Paulus Orosius, is the record of progress, despite its occasional declines from the human perspective, because it moves in terms of God, who makes all things work together for good unto his elect, and all of whose acts, even those that they have thought evil, they have found to be good. For Erosius, creation means providence and the government of God. Quote, it follows, too, that if we are the creation of God, we are also properly the object of his concern. End quote. The Roman Empire and the Roman peace were created by Christ to prepare the world for his coming. Christ is the judge of the centuries and judge over Sodom and Rome. Man can understand only through the word of God because man's own perspective is that of a creature, and if he has no criterion outside of himself, his perspective is, even to his own mind, an obviously limited one, because what man knows and feels most sharply is the present. Quote, a man who is annoyed by fleas at night and unable to sleep may happen to recall other wakeful hours that he once endured from burning fevers. Without doubt, he will bear far less patiently the, re the restlessness of these hours than the re recollection of his earlier experience. Everyone on the basis of his own experience can testify that the time element does introduce a new consideration here. 
But will anyone come forth and assert whatever his pain that fleas cause greater suffering than do fevers? End quote. <coughs> Man is subject in his knowing to the limitations of time, to the fact of his sin, which places him in rebellion against God and God's truth and to the fact that man's own being is still extensively unknown to himself, in that his creaturely potentiality is not yet fully realized. He is, therefore, changeable. But God is, as Tertullian emphasized, unchangeable and eternal. Moreover, God, quote, neither ceases to be what he was, nor can he be anything other than what he is, end quote. As Williams has summarized it, the concept of potentiality cannot be applied to God. This God has total command of himself and of all creation, and he therefore both speaks and acts with perfection. True and consistent revelation and knowledge are thus possible, whereas among the non-Christian philosophers of the New Academy, their, quote, basic principle was that probability in the realm of knowledge is all that man can hope to attain. End quote. <clears throat> As Moreau has aptly observed, Christianity is an intellectual religion and cannot exist in a context of, of barbarism. The uneducated it must educate, and the learned it must challenge and overcome by the unrelenting apologetics of biblical faith. In the conflict with the Roman Empire, the Christian thinkers carried the day and Rome found that its only effective argument, which finally failed, was persecution. And the more fanatically the Roman emperors sought to advance salvation, economically, politically, and religiously, through their genius, the more obvious their failure became. Their salvation, for all Romans, more closely resembled oppression. Clearly, the non-Christian Romans themselves, who were not bound to pray for those in authority, as were Christians, were at times more in a mood to swear at the genius of the emperor than by it. Section 9. Constantine the Great The issues with respect to the Christian doctrine of the one and the many came to focus in the struggles leading to the creeds. The first great creed came from the Council of Nicaea in 325, called by Constantine the Great. There is no question that Constantine has been savagely treated by historians who find it hard to forgive him for, the, for ending the persecution of Christians. It is becoming common to omit the historic designation the Great from his name, Although historians indulge no such post-mortems with respect to Alexander the Great, Charlemagne, Peter the Great, or Frederick the Great, he is regularly set down as a murderer because of the executions of several members of his family, with no consideration given to the fact that evidence for judgment is lacking. It may have been murder, and it may have been morally as well as legally valid, in terms of the various conspiracies so common to the day. Certainly, Percival was right in calling to attention the fact that Constantine's character was outstanding in comparison to the character of his predecessors, and in itself was not with, without clearly commendable aspects and strength. A good case can be made for the moral stature of Constantine the Great, as well as for his greatness as a ruler.
religiously, the sincerity of his faith need not be doubted. Delay baptism was not uncommon in his day. It is in the realm of theology that Constantine must be found wanting. He respected Christianity deeply, and at the Council of Nicaea was deeply moved at the sight of the maimed, blinded, and crippled veterans of the persecutions. Christianity represented strength, and Constantine believed in strength. It represented the power of God, and Constantine believed in the power of God as a Roman. As Constantine saw it, the function and calling of the church was to revivify the Roman Empire and to establish on a sound basis the genius of the emperor. Constantine was respectfully, kindly and patient with the church, but in all this he still saw the church as an aspect of the empire, however central a bulwark. The evidence indicates that he saw himself somewhat as Eusebius of Caesarea saw him. Even as God was sovereign and monarch over all in heaven, so Constantine was sovereign and monarch on earth. Eusebius wrote, quote, Thus, as he was the first to proclaim all the sole sovereignty of God, so he himself, as sole sovereign of the Roman world, extended his authority over the whole human race. End quote. <coughs> Constantine stated in a letter to Alexander the bishop and Arius the presbyter, that his purpose was twofold with respect to the empire. The second, a military goal, the first intellectual. Quote, My design then was, first, to bring the diverse judgments formed by all nations respecting the deity to a condition, as it were, of settled uniformity, and secondly, to restore to health the system of the world. End quote. However patient he was with the theological struggle, it seemed to him trivial as compared to the virtue of unity, and he was dismayed because the churchmen wrangled together on points so trivial and altogether unessential. For Constantine, the fine points of the doctrine of Christ were unessential because it was the welfare and unity of the empire which were essential to him. The form of prayer given by Constantine to his soldiers is indicative of this. It was a prayer which pagans could use readily as adherents of other religions. Its central faith and hope is in the imperial victory. Quote, we acknowledge thee, the only God. We own thee as our king and implore thy succour. By thy favour we ha we, have we gotten the victory. Through thee are we mightier than our enemies. We render thanks for thy past benefits and trust thee for future blessings. Together we pray to thee and beseech thee long to preserve us safe and triumphant, our Emperor Constantine and his pious sons. End quote. On one occasion, Constantine, in Eusebius's hearing, said to a company of bishops, quote, You are bishops whose jurisdiction is within the church. I also am a bishop, ordained by God to overlook whatever is external to the church. End quote. How Constantine saw his episcopal office is best revealed in the church he had built in memory of the apostles at Constantinople. In anticipation of his own death, quote, he accordingly caused twelve coffins to be set up in this church, like sacred pillars in honour of the apostolic number, in the centre of which his own was placed, having six of theirs on either side, end quote. This construction openly and obviously invited comparison to Christ. 
Constantine had trouble following the Christological controversy, which, despite his patience, he found trivial, but he did not find it difficult to define his own Christological status as Emperor, Saviour, Pontifex Maximus, and Bishop of God. This is not to deny that Constantine believed in the reality of the biblical God, but rather to affirm it. Moreover, however, Roman, his outlook, his God was still the Christian God, and, as Constantine declared, quote, it is God's work to guide everything to the best fulfilment, and it is for man to be obedient to God, end quote. The state was not man's saviour, nor was the emperor a deity, Storfer's comment is to the point, quote, Constantine promised no golden age as the emperors and court prophets of the past had done, but an age of grace, an empire which practiced forgiveness, because it was founded and depended upon God's forgiving act, end quote. This is an important fact. An age of grace is markedly different from an age of messianic emperors. The critical question comes with respect to the administration of the Age of Grace. Is there one earthly administrator, even as there is one heavenly Christ, and, if so, who is he? The loyal bishop, Eusebius, in his oration, in speaking of the Christ, answered this question. <coughs> Quote, this is he who holds a supreme dominion over this whole world, who is over and in all things, and pervades all things, visible and invisible, the word of God, from whom and by whom our divinely favoured emperor, receiving, as it were, a transcript of the divine sovereignty, directs, in imitation of God himself, the administration of this world's affairs. End quote. The emperor, then, was the vicegerent of God and of Christ. It was an age of grace, and Rome was the focal point of that grace. The Roman Empire, once viewed as the world order born of chaos, was now viewed as the world order ordained by God. Old Rome was now linked with the New Jerusalem, and the pagan polis was baptised into a Christian polis. For many churchmen, as well as for Constantine, this was the correct order. Rome had strayed because she had lost contact with a divine order. That relationship with the divine order had now been re-established, and the fact of central importance was not the person of Christ and doctrines concerning it, but the person of the empire, its unity and strength. Priority belonged to the temporal order and to the empire, not to the eternal order and the divine human, Christ. Hence, the orthodox doctrine of Christ was a menace in that this Christ was clearly Lord of time and eternity and denied priority to the temporal order. The orthodox Christ was a final and only Christ, and this was a denial of a determinative history and potentially to the temporal order. Section 10. Arianism. This heretical doctrine found expression in Arius circa 260 to 336, and Arianism. In Thalia, Arius struck out sharply against the idea of a final and only Christ and mediator between God and man. Quote, Many words speaketh God. Which then of these are we to call Son and Word, only begotten of the Father? End quote. 
Athanasius, in citing this, called it anything but Christian, and rightfully so. <coughs> the god of Arius was a god with no certain or final word. He spoke many words, and hence his truth was at least a changeable word, and at best an evolving truth. The possibility of an absolute truth was destroyed, and the priority of eternity was destroyed. Arius's god, like man, was seeking expression in history and working towards true order. Arius professed to have, as do Bath and others today, a high doctrine of the otherness of God, but his God was incomprehensible, not because of his transcendence, but because he was a God who did not comprehend himself. How then could man know this God of many words? The God of Arius has a real kinship to chaos. He is ineffable and the unbegun, not only to all men, but also, as Arius wrote in Thalia, to speak in brief, God is ineffable to his son, for he is to himself what he is, that is, unspeakable, so that nothing which is called comprehensible does the son know to speak about, for it is impossible for him to investigate the father who is by himself. End quote. The resemblance to the God of Kantian and post-Kantian thought is very real. How can a son know a God who, quote, is to himself unspeakable, who cannot know himself? Of necessity, Arius must say, many words speak of God. I'm guessing an end quote should be there. Of necessity, Arius must say, many words speak of God. Not one Christ, but many Christs, because not knowing himself, he cannot speak a final word or an authoritative one. Instead of an eternal word, Arianism held to a chaining word. Quote, Accordingly, when someone asked them whether the word of God can possibly change as the devil changed, they were not afraid to say that he can. For being something made and created, his nature is subject to change. End quote. The issue of this, Athanasius stated, is polytheism. A God with many words and many potentialities is not one but many, closely resembling chaos and the gods arising out of chaos. The Aryan God needed the many words, who were not gods, and yet like many gods, in order to have any relationship to the world. As a result, the Aryan monotheism ended up as a vindication of pagan polytheism. As, Anathasius, as Athanasius stated it, <clears throat> Quote, Rather then, will the Ariomaniacs with reason incur the charge of polytheism, or else, or else of atheism, because they idly talk of the Son as external and a creature, and again the Spirit as from nothing? For either they will say that the Word is not God, or saying that He is God because it is so written, but not proper to the Father's essence. They will introduce many, because of their difference of kind, Unless, forsooth, they shall dare to say that by participation only he, as all things else, is called God, though, if this be their sentiment, their irreligion is the same, since they consider the word as one among all things. But let this never even come into our mind, for there is but one form of Godhead, which is also in the word, and one God, 
the Father, existing by himself according as he is above all, and appearing in the Son according as he pervades all things, and in the Spirit according as in him he acts in all things through the Word. For thus we confess God to be one through the triad, and we, and we say that it is much more religious than the Godhead of the heretics, with its many kinds and many parts to entertain a belief of the one Godhead in a triad. End quote. The Arians, believing history to be the determinative realm, were thus partial to any order which offered salvation in and through the control of history. They were, accordingly, statists, hostile to the independence of the church, zealous for the power of the emperor, and deriving their main power from state support. As Athanasius said, quote, they prop up the heresy with human patronage. End quote. <clears throat> Section 11. Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was called by Constantine to unify the church as a part of the movement to strengthen and unify the empire. Constantine sought unity was impatient of doctrine, but was also studiously patient with what seemed to him to be trivial points of doctrine. With Nicaea, the civil punishment of Christian heresy began. Much has been made of this fact by historians who have used it to belabor the church. They have not stated, however, that first, this was simply a continuation of Roman imperial policy respecting religion. The state cult had to be accepted by all, whatever else they also believed. The state cult was now a form of Christianity. Second, the state cult then, and in the following centuries, was usually a pseudo-Christianity, or a defective Christianity, which, like Arianism, was subservient to the state. The state, concerned with its own power and welfare, usually favoured that church group which best rendered prior allegiance to Caesar rather than to Christ. The persecution of Orthodox Christianity continued. It was often seen as the enemy of the state, a situation no less true in the 20th century. But the Council of Nicaea, called by Constantine with the religious warfare of the empire in mind and its civil and religious unity, was used by the church to unify itself against heresy and against doctrines, leading to a surrender of the church to the state. As Leith has noted, Against Arius, Nicaea insisted that God has fully come into human history in Jesus Christ and declared the finality of Jesus Christ. Moreover, quote, the cultural significance of the Nicene theology is revealed in the disposition of the political imperialists to be Arians. Imperialism, as a political strategy, was more compatible with the notion that Jesus Christ is something less than the full and absolute word of God. End quote. The Nicene Creed declared, quote, We believe in one God, the Father, all-governing, Pantocratora, Creator, Poietin, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, as only begotten, that is, from the essence, reality, of the Father. Ectes oisias tau patros. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, 
not created, poiathenta, of the same essence, reality, as the Father, homoousion to patri, through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and in earth, who, for us men and for our salvation, came down and was incarnate, becoming human, and anthropocenta. He suffered, and the third day rose, and ascended into the heavens, and he will come to judge both the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. But those who say, once he was not, or he was not before his generation, or he came to be out of nothing, or who assert that he, the Son of God, is of a different hypostasis, or usia, or that he is a creature, or changeable, or mutable, the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes them. End quote. <clears throat> In a famous footnote, Gibbon expressed his contempt for Christian doctrine as defined at Nicaea. Quote, I cannot forbear reminding the reader that the difference between the homoousian and the homoousian is almost invisible to the nicest theological eye. End quote. The difference which triumphed at Nicaea was a momentous one. The issue was Christ or Caesar, a final and authoritative Christ, or a statist order as the expression of the truth of history. The whole of Gibbon's work is a longing for the old Roman totalitarian state. The Nicene Creed asserted that Christianity can only mean an authoritative, final and only begotten Christ and the priority of eternity to time. The state was dethroned from its pretension to be the divine order. By denying that Christ is Lord and Saviour, Arianism first had made the state man's lord and saviour, and the Arians were dedicated statists. The emperor, not Christ, his word and the church, was central to the Arians. Second, the Arians denied the Christian answer to the problem of the one and the many. Arius insisted on the primacy of unity. The one was all important. Arius made history more determinative than eternity. This unity in the determinative realm is the state, the Roman Empire. The Orthodox Christians, by affirming one God of three equal persons, affirmed the equal ultimacy of the one and the many, and, by their doctrine of God, they affirmed his perfection, power, eternal decree, or determinative role, and they thereby de-divinized both the state and history or time. The god of Arius was a philosophical abstraction, a chaos with polytheism, added. The only person on man's horizon was the emperor, and the emperor hearing and power were better and more immediate than gods. The emperor's hearing and power, better and more immediate than gods. The issue, contrary to Gibbon, was not the letter I, but the liberty of man under God. <coughs> Because Athanasius, 299-373, led the Orthodox forces, the forces of hostility were aimed against him. Twice, murderers, state-appointed and subservient bishops were forced onto his see to replace him. Athanasius was exiled five times. 
his life was often in danger, and he spent six years in the desert with hermits. He was falsely accused of a wide variety of offences, including murder and sexual immorality. His real offence was his orthodoxy, his refusal to allow the doctrine of a final and ultimate Christ to be replaced by beliefs which left the door wide open for the revival of Roman polytheism and statism. This is not to say that Athanasius' position was flawless. The defect in Athanasius' thinking is apparent in his statement, often repeated, quote, For he, Christ, was made man that we might be made God, and he manifested himself by a body, that we might receive the idea of the unseen Father, and he endured the insolence of men, that we might inherit immortality, End quote. For Athanasius, this deification of man was not by nature, but given to man by grace, and he objected to the Arian doctrine as conducive to a natural deification. In spite of his own qualification, Athanasius' concept here was a departure from the faith, and a dangerous one. It was an open door to paganism, which Shelton emphatically closed. Section 12 Constantinople I. <clears throat> At the First Council of Constantinople in 381, the Nicene Creed was affirmed and sharpened, so that the authentic deity of the Holy Spirit as well as of the Father and the Son was affirmed. In the Council's synodic Synodical Letter of 382, the true faith, the ancient faith, the faith of our baptism, is defined, quote, According to this faith, there is one Godhead, power and substance of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, the dignity being equal, and the majesty being equal in the three perfect hypostases, that is, the three perfect persons. Thus, there is no room for the heresy of Sabellius by the confusion of the hypostases, that is, the destruction of the personalities, thus the blasphemy of the eunomians, of the Arians, of the Pneumatomachi, is nullified, which divides the substance, the nature and the Godhead, and superinduces on the uncreated, consubstantial, and co-eternal trinity, a nature posterior, created, and of a different substance. We, moreover, preserve unperverted the doctrine of the incarnation of the Lord, holding the tradition that the dispensation of the flesh is neither soulless nor mindless nor imperfect, and knowing full well that God's word was perfect before the ages and became perfect man in the last days for our salvation. <coughs> the implications of the orthodox position were steadily becoming explicit, and it is not merely rhetoric that led them to call their opponents and atheists. Opponents, atheists and unbelievers. The logic of their position required them to define theism as Trinitarian theism, with no subordination of persons in the ontological trinity. Monism is essentially pantheistic. Instead of making man a creature of God, it makes man a participant in the very being of God, the only differentiation being in the degree of participation. Dualism simply divides divinity into conflicting and dialectical spheres. It is equally given to divinizing man. Can a non-Christian theism exist? 
the Orthodox Fathers saw Christ in New Testament terms, present as God the Son, with the Father and the Holy Ghost in the whole of the Old Testament. Theism had always been Trinitarian. No other kind of theism was possible. With a supposedly one-person God, no communication and mediation was possible, nor any salvation feasible. Jesus had denied that any man could come to the Father but through him. John 14.6 Moreover, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. John 14.9 There was no other God than this triune God, and hence no other theism was possible. Section 13 The Orthodox Faith versus Heresies One God, three persons. This was the Orthodox faith. Every attempt to weaken this faith had been also an attack on theism. Monarchianism had said that God the Son was indeed equal with the Father, but it had denied that he was a separate or distinct person in the Godhead. This was the position of Paul of Samosata. The Logos existed in God just as human reason exists in man. The Logos was an impersonal power. This impersonal power of God was present in all men, but most present in the man Jesus, whom it gradually deified through a union of will rather than of essence. In the modalistic monarchianism of Sibelius, the Son and the Spirit were simple modes of the Father in his self-expression, developments, as it were, in his coherence. To avoid this, said Athanasius, the word, sorry, then is a true word essential, and according to scripture, neither is the word separated from the Father, nor was or is the Father ever wordless. Monarchianism had thus two alternatives. First, the adoptionist or dynamic view, whereby Christ was a mere man, to whom the single person, God, of single being, attached himself by a union of wills, this opened the door to other such attachments, so that God could enter, enter history repeatedly to divinize it by his union with men, movements, emperors, or states. This was paganism again, and history was made the arena of God's activity. The divine will did not issue an eternal decree and create and govern history from eternity. Instead, the divine will worked in and through a fluid history by uniting his will with the will of a great man or movement to effect a desired end. Time and man became determinative, and the best God is the one who captures the dynamic union in history. For the second group, the modalists, Christ was truly divine and one person with the Father, being simply a mode or manifestation of the divine being. There was no real incarnation, but to preserve any reality to the Christ, it was necessary to ascribe to the being of the single person, God the Father, all that befell the Christ in history, including birth, suffering and death. Thus, this supposedly transcendental being was made a creature of time and a subject of it, so that, again, the temporal arena became decisive over eternity, or at the very least, it became an area which eternity and God must struggle with frequent or possible setbacks to conquer. 
Man and God are thus together struggling against the universe and time, warring against chaos. A version of this early doctrine appeared after Nicaea in Marcellus of Ancyra, who held that the eternal and impersonal Logos, immanent in God, and itself the divine energy, became personal at the Incarnation, and after the Incarnation was reabsorbed into the Godhead. Athanasius pertinently com commented of Marcellus, quote, This perhaps he borrowed from the Stoics, who maintained that their God contracts and again expands with the creation, and then rests without end, end quote. The pagan concept of being was clearly in evidence. An aspect of God's energy becomes personal in time where it becomes powerful and commands history and then, passing from history, returns to a contracted and lower state. History is again the central arena and God comes to a fuller self-consciousness in history. Thus, every departure from the orthodox Trinitarian faith however seemingly an exaltation of God and his transcendence, was a destruction of theism. The perfection and omnipotence of God were in effect denied, and eternity ceased to be determinative of time. History became the focal point of the universe and not the throne of God, and to be effectual or even fully self-conscious, God had to enter history and link himself with determinative man. God had to find himself in man and in history. This was not theism, but humanism. It was bluntly called atheism by the Orthodox Fathers. <clears throat> As they recognised, the only possible theism was Orthodox Trinitarian theism. Three persons, equal and without subordination. One God, omnipotent, unchangeable and wholly self-conscious and determinative. Section 14. Ephesus. This same question, in another form, was dealt with by the Council of Ephesus in 431. Was Christ born a common man of the Virgin Mary, and did God then unite himself to this perfect man in moral fellowship and communion? Was it a case of a perfect coexistence and co-working of the human and the divine? In this opinion, the two natures continue as two natures, but in full communion rather than union. This opinion, commonly called Nestorian, was opposed by Cyril of Alexandria. At Ephesus, twelve anathematisms were issued against the Nestorian position. The second anathema declared, quote, If anyone shall not confess that the word of God, the Father, is united and hypostatically to flesh, and that with the flesh of his own, he is one only Christ, both God and man at the same time, let him be anathema. End quote. The third anathema continued, quote, If anyone shall after the hypostatic union divide the hypostases in the one Christ, joining them by that connection alone, which happens according to worthiness or even authority and power, and not rather by a coming together which is made by natural union, let him be anathema. End quote. <coughs> the, third anathema, the third anathema made clear the pagan doctrine which had been opened up by this heresy. 
A worthy man with power and authority could affect a common operation with God and become the manifestation of God for his age. The uniqueness of Christ would be destroyed and the door left wide open to divine rulers and emperors. In this perspective, Christ was, as the fifth anathema pointed out, the only Theophorus, that is, God-bearing man, instead of very God, as well as very man. Again, the door was open to other God-bearing men. Jesus becomes, as the seventh anathema stated, merely a man energized by the word of God. Can others then not claim to be also energized? Is not this the implication of this heresy? Nestorius, in keeping as he hoped, God and man separate, had actually opened the door to their continual non-Christian pagan union of wills. In his own words, he wanted to give, quote, to God that which is God's and to man that which is man's, end quote. But by his departure from the orthodox doctrine, he had given the divine initiative to a man who had affected a union of power with God. The Council of Ephesus also issued a condemnation of the Messalians, also known as Eukites, a group of heretics with a thinly veiled dualism which resembled Manichaeanism. They believed that two souls existed in man, one good and the other evil. They despised physical labour, moral law and marriage, and asserted that prayer alone would drive out the evil spirit or soul. They held to a changing divinity who united himself to man. Christ's body was held to be infinite, but was originally full of demons. Man could attain perfection to the point of equaling the deity in virtue and knowledge. Perfection meant impassibility. Their infiltration of monasteries was especially extensive. The group survived and was on the medieval scene as the Bojomiles as well as the Messalians. Here, more openly but with the same tenacity, the issue was Orthodox Christian theism versus anti-Christianity. Section 15. Chalcedon. Nestorianism Having been dealt with at Ephesus, the Monophysite danger had yet to be faced, and at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the problem was dealt with. More than that, a theological wall was erected against divinization. An important part of the Council's history is the Tome of Leo. St. Leo the Great, Bishop of Rome, in a statement sent to the Council, asserted the reality of the two natures in Christ. Quote, For each of the natures restrains its proper character without defect, re, sorry, retains its proper character without defect, and as the form of God does not take away the form of a servant, so the form of a servant does not impair the form of a God. End quote. God the Son did not unite himself with a man already in existence, but in fact put on humanity. Quote, what was assumed from the Lord's mother was nature, not fault, nor does the wondrousness of the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin's womb, imply that his nature is unlike ours. For the self-same 
who is very God, is also very man, and there is no illusion in this union. While the lowliness of man and the loftiness of Godhead meet together. For as God is not changed by the compassion exhibited, so man is not consumed by the dignity bestowed. End quote. <clears throat> Moreover, there is no confusion of the two natures. Quote, and as the word does not withdraw from equality with the Father in glory, so the flesh does not abandon the nature of our kind. End quote. That this statement should have come from St. Leo is of great importance, because, as a biographer has noted, Leo was no heresy hunter. Although his personal contributions contained little that was strictly original, St. Leo's role is an unusual one, since, quote, neither before nor after him was there any pope who actually took the initiative motu proprio in a controversy in which a purely doctrinal issue was at stake. End quote. St. Leo was primarily a pastor and an administrator, but he was able to see that the life of the church was at stake in this controversy. Man's salvation, as he repeatedly emphasized it in letters and sermons, is at stake in the doctrine of the two natures. Quote, For if there is not in him true and perfect nature, there is no taking of us upon him, and the whole of our belief and teaching according to this heresy is emptiness and lying. End quote. The two natures are in union without confusion. Man had sinned against God, and through man must be made the perfect obedience and atonement, but man himself cannot render it. The Incarnation changed all the possibilities of man's existence. At this point, Leo shared Athanasius's error. Quote, the descent of God to man's estate became the exaltation of man to God's. End quote. <clears throat> as with Athanasius, this was by grace, and Leo tended to see it as a communion, a sound view rather than a heretical union. He saw that virtually all heresies stemmed from a failure to believe in the reality of the two natures in the one person of Christ. He insisted on the equality of the three persons of the Trinity, whose substance admits no diversity either in power or glory or eternity. Christ must be himself true God, possessing unity and equality with the Father and with the Holy Ghost, in order to be our Saviour, and he must be very man of very man, as well of as very God of very God. Quote, if it is only man's nature which is to be acknowledged, where is the Godhead which saves? If only God's, where is the humanity which is saved? End quote. Nestorius could accept Chalcedon in his own sense, but not Chalcedon and Ephesus as the unity they were. The Monophysites could accept Ephesus, but Chalcedon presented problems. Since Chalcedon stood firmly on the foundation of Ephesus and in unity with it, no partial interpretation or any deviation could stand approved. The definition of Chalcedon thus preserved the reality of the eternal and electing God and the reality of the Incarnation. The definition declared, quote, Following, then, 
the Holy Fathers, we unite in teaching all men to confess the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> this self-same one is perfect, teleion, both in deity, theoteti, and also in humanness, anthropoteti. This self-same one is also actually alephos, God, and actually man, with a rational soul, psyches logikes, and a body. He is of the same reality as God, homoousion to patri, as far as his deity is concerned, and of the same reality as we are ourselves, homoousion hemen, as far as his humanness is concerned. Thus, like us in all respects, sin only accepted. Before time began, pro aeonon, he was begotten of the Father, in respect of his deity, and now in this last days, for us and on behalf of our salvation, that selfsame one who was born of Mary the Virgin, who is the God-bearer, Theotokos, in respect to his humanness, Anthropoteta. We also teach that we apprehend Gnorizomenon, this one and only Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, in two natures, duophysices. And we do this without confusing the two natures, asunkutos, without transmuting one nature into the other, atreptos, without dividing them into two separate categories, adiretos, without contrasting them according to area or function. Achoristos. The distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. Instead, the properties, idiotetos, of each nature are conserved and both natures concur. Suntrecosis in one person, prosopon, and in one hypostasis. They are not divided or cut into two prosopa, but are together the one and only, and only begotten Logos of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus have the prophets of old testified. Thus has the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us. Thus the symbol of the fathers, N, has handed down paradedoke to us. End quote. The two natures were thus declared to have been united in Christ unchangeably, inseparably, and unconfusedly. This definition became the touchstone of orthodoxy. Its implications were important. First, it sharply separated the Christian faith from non-Christian concept of nature and being. Syncretism was thereby condemned. There could be no legitimate fusion between Christianity and non-Christian religion and philosophies. Second, by denying the confusion of the human and the divine even in Christ, it denied its possibility in any other person or institution. The divinization of the state, the ruler, or the state office was undercut. The gap between the uncreated being of God and the created being of man could not be nullified. Even the incarnation, which was final and unique, was without confusion of the two natures. 
the present pagan attempts to divinize man and his order were denied any toehold in Orthodox Christianity. Third, the doctrine of the Trinity was underscored. Three persons, one God, all three perfect and equally ultimate and powerful in all things. Thus, the equal ultimacy of the one and the many was further defended. The truth about life was neither unity nor particularity, neither social atomism nor totalitarianism, but rather the equal importance of both the one and the many. The Trinity, three persons, one God, made impossible any legitimate Christian totalitarianism or atomism. The one and the many are equally ultimate in the triune God. Significantly, in the same year, 451, the forces of Persian dualism were halted in their westward religious and military march by the Armenians, who, while out of touch with Shalston, nevertheless fought a similar battle. At the crucial battle of Avariya, Vartan Mamagonian, hero of the Armenians, while losing his life, and the battle in a bloody stand still halted the Persian march. <coughs> Section 16. Pelagianism and Asceticism Since Shalsuddin had blocked one avenue of incursion by paganism into Christianity, other avenues had to be used. The doctrine of God and of Christ had been defined. The new approach was made through the doctrine of man. Already before Ephesus, Pelagianism had allied itself with Nestorius in 429 and the Council of Ephesus in 431, linked in condemnation the opinions of Nestorius and Celestius, Celestius or Culestius being a Pelagian leader. Pelagianism was pagan moralism and philosophy comparable to 18th century deism in many respects. Warfield has correctly stated, quote, The real question at issue was whether there was any need for Christianity at all, whether by his own power man might not attain eternal felicity. End quote. The only function of Christianity being to help man in this self-salvation. The origins of Pelagianism were monastic and ascetic, and they were philosophical. It is important to note the equation of asceticism with philosophy. As Richardson noted, philosophy meant virginity, and in its earlier usages did, quote, not refer to Christian virginity, but primarily to philosophical celibacy. The Neoplatonic philosophy of the times, through its doctrine of the purification of the soul by its liberation from the body or sensuous things, taught celibacy and ascetic practices generally. So Plotinus, deceased AD 270, practiced and taught to a degree, and Porphyry, deceased 301, more explicitly. End quote. As Prestige noted, pagan mystics prayed to be delivered from the flesh rather than sin. Hellenized Jewish hermits appeared well before Christian hermits in the Christian desert, and there was a Hellenized Jewish colony of hermits near Lake Mariotis. From the 2nd century BC, the immured ones of the Serapis lived incarcerated in cells near their god, 
receiving food through small windows and living and dying in their holes. This is pagan asceticism, deeply rooted, infiltrated into Christianity. Asceticism is of two varieties. First, monistic asceticism holds to the oneness of all being with gradation and variation. Thus, particularity is an illusion, and unity is the goal and truth of being. Spirit is high on the scale of being, while matter is a thinness of being, so that spirit has more substantiality than matter. The holy man seeks to ascend on this ladder of being from the nothingness of evil and matter to the substantiality and holiness of pure spirit. For Dante, the depth of inferno is locked in ice and darkness and is motionless, close to non-being, whereas the ultimate vision of heaven is the fullness of light, energy and motion, pure spirit as against pure matter. <coughs> Second, dualistic asceticism sees reality divided into two hostile camps, spirit versus matter. These two worlds are in confusion. The way of holiness is to disentangle the two worlds and affirm the good world, the world of spirit. Man must therefore surrender, negate or destroy in himself all that which would affirm the evil world of matter. This can be done either by ascetic practices or by debauchery, by treating the flesh as outside the world of law or morality and hence open to any use, ascetic or sensual, which treats it with contempt. Biblical revelation is radically hostile to both forms of asceticism. Matter and spirit are both created by God, both fallen in Adam under the curse, and both objects of saving grace and the resurrection. The church, following the scripture, began by condemning the practice and theory of asceticism. Quote, if any bishop or presbyter or deacon or indeed any one of the sacerdotal catalogue abstains from marriage, flesh and wine, not for his own exercise, but because he abominates these things, forgetting that all things were very good and that God made man male and female and blasphemously abuses the creation, either let him reform or let him be deprived and cast out of the church and the same for one of the laity. End quote. Nonetheless, however, asceticism of both kinds crept into the church and brought with it a high view of man and his ability to save himself. As Scott noted, asceticism, already fully developed in the empire among the pagans, crept into the church with monasticism and, quote, the monk needs no saviour, he is a self-redeemer like the Stoic or any other moralist. End quote. As Pickman noted, quote, In this faith there was nothing specifically Christian. Pagan priests and philosophers held their prestige by similar methods, and even the physicians of that day were expected to be chaste and abstinent during a stated period before administering their cure. A canon of the Council of Tours held much later in 461 shows that this conception was never eradicated. Priests and deacons are urged to be always chaste, for at any moment they may be called upon to some holy office, as to say mass, baptize, etc. Canon number one. 
Evidently, asceticism's popular appeal in those days was less on account of its psychological effect on the ascetic himself than of its physical effect on those to whom he ministered. It was the chosen weapon of the humanitarian. That is why before a long before long a physician who did not become a monk lost his practice. End quote. <clears throat> More than humanitarianism, it was humanism, a belief in the ability of man to divinize himself by ascent on the scale of being. As Polycarp Sherwood has summarized the teaching of St. Maximus the Confessor, quote, Deification is the ultimate fulfilling of humans, human nature's capacity for God. In actual historical fact, deification and salvation are the same. End quote. This is qualified by the statement that it is possible through grace and by grace, so that deification is wholly a gift of God and is not attainable by nature's nude powers. End quote. But the deification still stands and the human powers are extensive. In Lactantius, the basic premise of, the, of asceticism appeared clearly. Quote, Those things which belong to God occupy the higher part, namely the soul, which has dominion over the body. But those things which belong to the devil occupy the lower part, manifestly the body. For this being earthly ought to be subject to the soul, as the earth is to heaven. For it is, as it were, a vessel, which this heavenly spirit may employ as a temporary dwelling. End quote. The soul thus belongs to the enduring one, and the body to the transient Mary, many. Salvation is thus not so much in Jesus Christ as in man's soul. According to Lactantius, quote, Knowledge in us is from the soul, which has its origin from heaven, ignorance from the body, which is from the earth, whence we have something in common with God and with animal creation. Thus, since we are composed of these two elements, the one of which is endowed with light, the other with darkness, a part of knowledge is given to us and a part of ignorance. Over this bridge, so to speak, we may pass without any danger of falling for all those who have inclined to either side, either toward the left hand or to the right, have fallen. End quote. The balance Lactantius had in mind is between divine philosophy and natural philosophy. It means keeping informed on both sides, but the gap between the soul from God and the body from the earth but the gap between the soul from God and the body from the earth cannot be balanced. The soul is far greater and more important than the body, for it is that which we have in common with God. When Leo the Great opposed Manichaean asceticism and dualism, he did it at times with almost monistic rather than Christian weapons. In denying the Manichaean view of evil, he answered that Evil has no positive existence. That is, it is not a metaphysical substance, but rather a penalty inflicted on substance. Evil thus existed in men not as a substance, but as a penalty thereon. But more than that, evil is not a metaphysical, but rather an ethical condition, 
not so much a penalty, but rather a moral act and condition which brings on the penalty of God's wrath and of death. Fasting in the Bible appears on a limited scale as a voluntary act and as, and as an expression of concentrated grief or repentance. It now became a good work, a self-restraint which led to spiritual pleasures. It was a means of vanquishing the enemy, an armour in the warfare against the devil. It was and is required in Lent. Lenten fasting is a means of restoring purity. St. Leo's ascetic tendencies, however, were relatively mild and his general stand was resolutely, resolutely Christian. <coughs> in Salvian, regrettably, we find the weakening of the body required, for the health of the body is inimical to the soul. The soul is an attribute which is divine, and the body an enemy which is of the earth. For Gregory the Great, asceticism was a prerequisite to authority. Sacerdotal celibacy was of central importance to him. In terms of this ascetic perspective, matter was equated with a lower and temporal reality, with a negligible particularity, and the spirit was equated with a good and eternal reality and unity. This position varied in emphasis from a Neoplatonism to a Neomachinianism. Its consequence was a tendency to despise things temporal in favour of things eternal. But for Orthodox Christianity, matter and spirit alike are created by God, alike fallen and alike redeemed. The life of holiness is not living in terms of the spirit and eternity, but obeying the word of God, living under God both materially and spiritually. Time and matter are not to be despised like spirit and eternity. They are good or evil only in their relationship to God and his word. Augustine, coming out of Platonism and Machineanism, and at first showing their traces, struck out against this false view of matter. It is sin which is evil, and not the substance or nature of flesh. Moreover, quote, There is no need, therefore, that in our sins and vices we accuse the nature of the flesh to the injury of the Creator, for in its own kind and degree the flesh is good, but to desert the Creator, good, and live according to the created good, is not good. Whether a man choose to live according to the flesh, or according to the soul, or according to the whole human nature, which is composed of flesh and soul, and which is therefore spoken of either by the name flesh alone, or by the name soul alone. For he who extols the nature of the soul as the chief good, and condemns the nature of the flesh as if it were evil, assuredly is fleshly, both in his love of the soul and hatred of the flesh. For these his feelings arise from human fancy, not from divine truth. End quote. The origin of sin is not in nature, but in will, and sin is contrary to nature, which was created good, <coughs> and whose property it was to abide with God. Sin is not metaphysical, but ethical. Quote, in scripture, they are called God's enemies who oppose his rule, not by nature, but by vice, having no power to hurt him, but only themselves. End quote. Sin is disobedience, 
rebellion, living for oneself and as one's own good. Adam's sin as act was preceded by an evil will. Quote, the devil then would not have ensnared man in the open and manifest sin of doing what God had forbidden had man not already begun to live for himself. End quote. Section 17. Deprecation of Matter and History This deprecation of matter and time against which Augustine spoke meant also the deprecation of history. In Greek terminology, the idea was important, not the matter. In Gnostic and heretical writings and apocryphal books, history was often casually treated and rewritten because it was unimportant. It merely illustrated an an eternal verity. As applied to the life of Christ, Within the fold of the church, this deprecation of history meant that the atoning death of Christ on the cross gave way to the sacrament, which was now the source of atonement rather than the historical event it was to commemorate. In the Nestorian teacher, Narsai, this appeared very clearly. Concerning the elements of the Lord's Supper, he declared, And he commanded them to receive and drink of it, all of them, that it might be making atonement for their debts forever. End quote. Each celebration of the sacrament is comparable to the creative act of Genesis 1. Quote, he, the priest, summons the spirit to come down and dwell in the bread and wine and make them the body and blood of King Messiah. The spirit descends upon the oblation without change of place, and causes the power of his Godhead to dwell in the bread and wine, and completes the mystery of our Lord's resurrection from the dead. Towards the height, the priest gazes boldly, and he calls the Spirit to come and celebrate the mysteries which he has offered. The Spirit, he asks, to come and brood over the oblation, and bestow upon it power and divine operation. The Spirit comes down at the request of the priest, be he never so great a sinner, and celebrates the mysteries by the mediation of the priest whom he has consecrated, or who has consecrated it. Who has consecrated. It is not the priest's virtue or his virtuousness, moral goodness, that celebrates the adorable mysteries, but the Holy Spirit celebrates by his brooding. The spirit broods, not because of the worthiness of the priest, but because of the mysteries which are set upon the altar. Without a priest, they, the mysteries, are not celebrated forever and ever. (coughs) Power thus has flowed, and centrality also, from the historical event to the memorial symbol and to the church which guards and celebrates that symbol. Forgiveness of sins and salvation are now attributes of the symbol rather than the act of atonement, and the worshipper, quote, receives in his hands the adorable body of the Lord of all, and he embraces, embraces it and kisses it with love and affection, end quote. The church's proclamation during distribution is plainly spoken, quote, Lo, the medicine of life, lo, it is distributed in holy church. Come, ye mortals, receive and be pardoned your debts. This is the body and blood of our Lord in truth, 
which the peoples have received and by which they have been pardoned without doubt. This is the medicine that heals diseases and festering sores. Receive, ye mortals, and be purified by it from your debts. Come, receive for naught forgiveness of debts and offences through the body and blood which takes away the sin of the whole world. End quote. <clears throat> Not only does the symbol take over the function of the act, but the representative, the priest, bears in himself the image of our Lord in that hour. So great is the power of the priest that people need to be reminded that the priest receives the sacrament, that when the priest receives the sacrament, he takes it that he may teach the people and that even the priest himself stands in need of mercy. The priest is a mediator between God and men. He thus has assumed the role of Christ. In baptism, quote, he calls and entreats the hidden power to come down unto him and bestow visible power to give life. The waters become fruitful as a womb, and the power of grace is like the seed that begets life. End quote. Indeed, it can be said that quote, a mortal holds the keys of the height as one in authority, and he binds and looses by the word of his mouth like the Creator. End quote. The priest has taken the place of the emperor and the great mediator and the source of continuity between the divine and the human. Even Gabriel and Michael bow beneath the will that is concealed in the priest's administration of the mysteries. <clears throat> Quote, and if spiritual impassable beings honour thine office, who will not weave a garland of praises for the greatness of thine order? Let us marvel every moment at the exceeding greatness of thine order, which was, which was bowed down the height and the depth under his, its authority. The priests of the church have grasped authority in the height and the depth, and they give commands to heavenly and earthly beings. They stand as mediators between God and man. With their words they drive iniquity from mankind. The key to divine mercies is placed in their hands, and according to their pleasure they distribute life to men. The debt of mankind the priest pays by means of his ministry, and the written bond of his race he washes out with the water and renews it. His race. End quote. This saving role, this authority over heavenly and earthly beings, and this mediatorial status and power over evil represents the continuation in the priesthood of the emperor's redemptive office. These concepts, which steadily crept into the church, became the cornerstones of sacerdotalism and of papalism. The church, that is, the body of Christ, that is, of his perfected humanity, came to regard itself as a continuation of the incarnation, so that the confusion prohibited by Chalcedon with respect to the person of Christ was accomplished in the church, the redeemed humanity now becoming now the continuing incarnation. Section 18. Augustine on the Pelagians. It is not surprising then that Pelagianism spread so readily. Although clearly a novelty in the church, it had the advantage of conformity to the pagan presuppositions of men. According to Warfield, quote, 
The central and formative principle of Pelagianism was the assumption of the plenary ability of man. End quote. The Pelagian accusation against orthodoxy seemed a persuasive one. First, predestination, or sovereign grace, was a denial of free will. Second, a denial of free will was fatalism, immoralism, sorry, immoralism, and a destruction of history. Augustine, in meeting this attack, was, first of all, resolved to be strictly biblical. Quote, For whenever a question arises on an unusually obscure subject, on which no assistance can be rendered by clear and certain proofs of the Holy Scriptures, the presumption of man ought to restrain itself, nor should it attempt anything definite by leaning to either side. End quote. Man's creaturely reason must submit to God's infinite wisdom as declared in Scripture. Quote, but we must first bend our necks to the authority of the Holy Scriptures, in order that we may arrive at knowledge and understanding through faith. End quote. <clears throat> Second, sovereign grace, which is proclaimed through all Scripture, means predestination. Quote, Between grace and predestination, there is only this difference, that predestination is the preparation for grace, while grace is the donation itself. End quote. If there is a sovereign God, it is impossible for there to be anything but predestination, which is merely another way of saying that God is sovereign, that God is the first cause as well as the sustainer of all creation. The alternative to predestination is not free will, but chance. Therefore, it follows, third, that, that it is predestination and grace which establish free will. Quote, do we then, by grace, make void free will? God forbid. Nay, rather we establish free will. For even as the law, by faith, so free will, by grace, is not made void, but established. For neither is the law fulfilled except by free will. But by the law is the knowledge of sin, by the faith the acquisition of grace against sin, by grace, the healing of the soul from the disease of sin. By free will, the love of righteousness. By love of righteousness, the accomplishment of the law. Accordingly, as the law is not made void, but is established through faith, since faith procures grace whereby the law is fulfilled, so free will is not made void through grace, but is established since grace cures the will whereby righteousness is freely loved. End quote. Man is a creature, thus he is a secondary cause, not the primary cause. His free will is not the absolute freedom of God, but the freedom of the creature. The freedom for man claimed by Pelagianism is the freedom of God, a plenary power, and it is a manifest impossibility. The freedom of the creature is possible only through grace, which re-establishes the lost liberty of the creature by its victory over the slavery of sin. Thus, faith establishes the law, and grace establishes free will. Quote, Wherefore, the free choice of the human will we by no means destroy, when the grace of God, by which the free choice itself is helped, we deny not with ungrateful pride, but rather set forth with grateful piety. For it is ours to will, 
but the will itself is, is both admonished that it may arise and healed that it may have power and enlarged that it may receive and filled that it may have. End quote. <clears throat> Section 19. The Church as New Rome. The Church, however, gradually moved towards semi-Pelagianism, despite some early stands against it in Africa. The Council of Orange, in 529, affirmed at best only a moderate Augustinianism. The decline after that was steady. As a result, both asceticism and sacerdotalism continued to develop and flourish. The church now became a rival to the empire as the, old heir, as the heir of old Rome. Political importance was the principle of ecclesiastical importance, and hence the basis of the Roman see's claims to central authority. Peter established many churches. Why was Rome so central, assuming that he established it? The early councils established the eminence of sees in terms of their political role, and this was plainly apparent in Canon 28 of Chalcedon, when the Bishop of New Rome, Constantinople, was granted the same honour as the Bishop of Old Rome, on account of the removal of the empire. Quote, for the fathers rightly granted privileges to the throne of Old Rome because it was the royal city. End quote. The church increasingly became the new Rome, but there were tendencies towards a revival of the same concepts in the empire. The position of Justinian II apparently was that quote, Christ is as king of kings is the supreme power, but he rules through the rulers of the earth, rather than directly over each individual human being. End quote. This was a concept related to the Greco-Roman idea of Zeus Jupiter as Pambasilius. Later, Christomimesis came to be a part of the Byzantine imperial, ceremoni imperial ceremonial, so that the emperor represented in his golden costume in so far as it is possible for a mere human being to do so, Jesus Christ himself. End quote. <clears throat> the later developments within the papacy have been sharply summarized by Buckler. Quote, the Pope claimed that he was the source of all authority, spiritual and secular, and, forgetting his vicerency of Christ, claimed to be the vicar of God on earth, and the vicar of the apostle of God on earth. These were the titles claimed by the Abbasid Caliphs of Baghdad. The Pope had, in reality, become the supreme prince of this world, and his pretensions resemble the claims set forth to our Lord at the Mount of Temptation. Luke 4.5 In his claim to be the absolute source of all law and justilia, to hold it in his breast, and to be in himself a Theos Epiphanes, he had become the Hellenistic monarch within the church, and the Son of Man was once more his slave, condemned to a servile righteousness. End quote. <coughs> Meanwhile also, another threat to Christianity was reviving in the form of natural law. The Institutes of Justinian, clearly perpetuated the Roman doctrine and transmitted it to the centuries to come. 
The universal sovereignty and government of God was restricted to the realm of grace and revelation, and nature became the universal government rather than God. This appeared clearly in a statement of Orosius. Quote, Among Romans, as I have said, I am a Roman. Among Christians, a Christian. Among men, a man. The state comes to my aid through its laws, religion through its appeal to the conscience, and nature through its claim of universality. End quote. Augustine had declared that unity is transcendental because God is transcendental. The unity and centre of the city of God is in eternity, and hence it cannot surrender to uh, this worldly authority and purpose. This emphasis was formally maintained but increasingly compromised. Nature was steadily to be given authority and universality over creation and over reason, and Christ was to be steadily restricted to eternity and faith. Section 20. Later Councils To return to the councils and their development, the Second Council of Constantinople, 553, reaffirmed the position of Chalcedon, and, in the Capitula, sharpened the definition in detail. The Third Council of Constantinople, 680-681, dealt with the Monothelites. Since the two-nature doctrine was entrenched now as the hallmark of orthodoxy, the argument shifted from nature to will. The Monothelites held to one will only in Christ, charging the orthodox party with a destruction of the unity of Christ's person. The term will was used not only in this sense of the ability of choice, self-determination and volition, but also to apply to appetites, desires and affections. Was Christ capable of fear, suffering and shrinking from death? The Duothelites, the orthodox party, charged that the one will doctrine destroyed the incarnation and gave only a docetic character to Christ. The letter of Pope Agatho to the Emperor clearly affirmed the orthodox position. Quote, and we recognise that each one of the two natures, of the one and the same incarnated, that is, humanated, humanati, word of God, is in him unconfusedly, inseparably and unchangeably, intelligence alone, discerning a unity, to avoid the error of confusion. For we equally detest the blasphemy of, div of division and of commixture. End quote. The pagan principle of continuity had to be denied. There could be no confusion of natures or of wills. The discontinuity, metaphysically, of God and man must be maintained. But the Christian principle of continuity is God's sovereign and total government of all his creation and his redeeming power as manifested in the Incarnation and Atonement. This, clearly, is not a metaphysical continuity. This Christian principle of continuity closes the door to the pagan principle and, at the same time, it bars a pagan deism which would isolate God from the world by its limitations on God, while permitting the upward and divinizing ascent of man. The letter of Agatho and the Roman Synod of 125 bishops 
a letter of instruction to their legates, stressed the perfect union without confusion of the two natures and two wills, quote, in one person and one subsistence, not scattered or divided into two persons, nor confused into one composite nature. Wherefore, as we confess that he truly has two natures, or substances, the Godhead and the manhood, inconfusedly, indivisibly, and unchangeably united, so also the rule of piety instructs us that he has two natural wills and two natural operations, as perfect God and perfect man, one and the same our Lord Jesus Christ. The Council's definition of faith in the course of its statement affirms both the discontinuity and the unity, as well as the purpose of the Christian principle of continuity, the salvation of the race. Quote, Preserving, therefore, the inconfusedness and indivisibility, we make briefly this whole confession, believing our Lord Jesus Christ to be one of the Trinity, and after the incarnation of our true God, we say that his two natures shone forth in his one subsistence, in which he both performed the miracles and endured the sufferings through the whole of his economic conversation, and that not in his appearance only, but in very deed, and this by reason of the difference of nature, which must be recognized in the same person, for although joined together, yet each nature wills and does things proper to it, and that indivisibly, indivisibly and inconfusedly. Wherefore we confess two wills and two operations, concurring most fitly in him for the salvation of the human race. End quote. <coughs> By the time of the Seventh Ecumenical Council in 787, the Second Council of Nicaea, the earlier theological sharpness was blurred. The cause of the council was the Byzantine iconoclastic controversy. The hostility of the iconoclastic emperors was not against icons as such, but against icons of the church, because the imperial icons were the true representations of Christ's government. As Ladner has pointed out, quote, the Byzantine emperors certainly did believe in the Incarnation, but they did not accept the following two consequences, the absolute supremacy of the Church in spiritual matters and the terrestrial representation of the celestial world in Christian imagery. Many historians have stated that the iconoclastic controversy developed from a rather ritual question to a fundamental contest between Church and State, that is to say, the Emperor. But the truth is that iconoclasm was, from its beginning, an attack on the visible representation of the Civitas Dei on this earth. Not only because the images had such an important place in the Byzantine Church, theologically and liturgically, that an attack against them was ipso facto an attack against the Church, but also but also, and still more, because, as we shall see, the emperors showed unmistakably that even in maintaining the belief in the supreme, supernatural government of Christ, they did not wish to permit on this earth any other but their own image, or, more exactly, the imagery of their own imperial natural world. They wished even more ardently than their predecessors, than most of the occidental emperors, to be the, the Christian, the sacred emperors. I am king and priest, king and priest, 
wrote Leo III to Pope Gregory II, following the old Caesaropapistic theory. But they understood this in such a way only in such a way that only their sacred empire was to be the material form of Christendom in the terrestrial world. The church would be only the liturgical function of the empire. Accordingly, the supernatural should remain abstract, and Christ and his heavenly world should not and could not be expressed visibly in images. End quote. Byzantine Caesaropapism was long linked to various heresies which challenged the orthodox doctrine of Christ. Monophysitism, Monophysitism Arianism, Nestorianism, and Monothelitism, as well as others. These heresies, quote, by narrowing the extension of Christ's government in the human world, widened the extension of the emperor's rulership, end quote. Thus, the question at issue was whether the state or the church was the highest expression of the divine life on earth. Both church and state were thus claiming to be the institution whereby Christ redivinized the world, or, at the very least, maintained his divine manifestation on earth. The basic premise of Chalcedon had therefore been set aside. Fusion and confusion had become basic to the faith. The human order could be transubstantiated by the divine order, and the argument was over the question of which order received this position. Was the new polis or divine empire the church, or was the Christian state? Earlier, churchmen had not only condemned images, but ridiculed their use by the Romans. Lactantius dealt with the Roman excuse that they worshipped heavenly beings and merely venerated their images, precisely the argument used by the church. Quote, but they say, we do not fear the images themselves, but those beings after whose likeness they were formed, and to whose names they are dedicated. You fear them doubtless on this account, because you think that they are in heaven, for if they are gods, the case cannot be otherwise. Why then do you not raise your eyes to heaven, and invoking their names, offer sacrifices in the open air? Why do you look to walls and wood and stone, rather to the place where you believe them to be? End quote. Augustine classified the many worshippers of tombs and pictures together with those who, in the name of grief and religion, are gluttonous or drunk at funerals. He saw them alike as an offence to the faith. The Second Council of Constantinople, 553, in condemning Nestorianism, declared that the worship of, the worship of a Christ who began as a man and became worthy of sonship, and to be worshipped out of a regard to the person of God and the Word, just as one worships the image of an emperor, is anathema. <clears throat> the definition of the iconoclastic conciliabulum, held in Constantinople in 754, condemned images. This council, attended by 338 bishops, the largest church assembly to that date, although neither Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, nor Jerusalem sent representatives, has been condemned by church historians. Let us examine the definition of this council as it defines the faith and images. Quote, 
After we had carefully examined their decrees under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we found that the unlawful act of painting living creatures blasphemed the fundamental doctrine of our salvation, namely the incarnation of Christ and contradicted the six holy synods. Those, these condemned Nestorius because he divided the one son and word of God into two sons, and on the other side Arius, Dioscorus, Eutyches and Severus because they maintained a mingling of the two natures of that of the one Christ. End quote. The councils forbid quote, that one may imagine any kind of separation or mingling in opposition to the unsearchable, unspeakable and incomprehensible union of the two natures of the one hypostasis or person. End quote. The name Christ represents the union of God and man. To represent Christ is, quote, a double blasphemy, the one in making an image of the Godhead, and the other by mingling the Godhead and manhood, end quote. When blamed for depicting the Godhead, many iconophiles took refuge in the excuse, quote, we represent only the flesh of Christ which we have seen and handled, end quote. But this is a Nestorian error, to hold to the possibility of their separate existence. Any attempt, therefore, to make images and claim for them either a part in the unique incarnation or a representation thereof, or merely a representation of Christ's humanity, falls into heresy at every turn. Quote, Whoever, then, makes an image of Christ either depicts the Godhead, which cannot be depicted, or mingles it with the manhood, like the Monophysites, or he represents the body of Christ not as not made divine and separate, separate, and as a person apart, like the Nestorians. The only admissible figure of the humanity of Christ, however, is bread and wine as the Holy Supper. This and no other form, this and no other type, has he chosen to represent his incarnation. End quote. <clears throat> the only permissible representation or sign is that which Christ himself has appointed. The Council went on to define an early statement of doctrine which came to be known as transubstantiation. All images were decreed barred by the Council. Quote, Christianity has rejected the whole of heathenism, and so not merely heathen sacrifices, but also the heathen worship of images. End quote. This, in, thus, imperial images were implicitly forbidden also. The Council grounded its position in the Holy Scriptures and Fathers. It barred not only images, but also the robbing of churches by prince or secular official under the pretext of destroying images. The Council believed it had more firmly proclaimed the, inseparably, the inseparability of the two natures of Christ and banished all idolatry, and among its anathemas it declared, quote, Number 10. If anyone ventures to represent the hypostatic union of the two natures in a picture and calls it Christ, and thus falsely represents the union of the two natures, let him be anathema. Number 11. If anyone separates the flesh united with the person of the word from it and endeavours to represent it separately in a picture, let him be anathema. Number 12. If anyone separates the Christ into two persons 
and endeavours to represent him who was born of the Virgin separately, and thus accepts only a relative union of the natures, let him be anathema. Number 13. If anyone represents in a picture the flesh deified by its union with the word, and thus separates it from the Godhead, let him be anathema. End quote. The purpose of the Second Council of Nicaea in 787 was to overturn the iconoclastic council and to make icons essential to the faith. It was ratified by 350 bishops. In Henry R. Percival's words, quote, the council decreed that similar veneration and honour should be paid to the representations of the Lord and the saints, as was accustomed to be paid to the Lorata, and tablets representing the Christian emperors, to wit, that they should be bowed to and saluted with kisses and attended with lights and the offering of incense. This was defined as the veneration and of honour and affection rather than worship. End quote. The council expressed no condemnation for the imperial cult. It simply rated the ecclesiastical icons as more important and called iconoclasm the worst of all heresies as it subverts, subverts the incarnation of our Saviour. The council held to the continuity of the incarnation of the church. Hence, it could not see iconoclasm in the church as anything but a denial of the incarnation. Images could be more influential on the faithful than the scripture, for St. Gregory of Nyssa read the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac many times, apparently without weeping. But once he saw it painted, he wept. Significantly, the council, in defining its position and affirming its faith in Christ, did not at all refer to Christ's two natures without confusion. It did affirm its faith in the intercession of the saints, a new form of the pagan continuity concept, it affirmed Christ's, quote, two natures, recognising him as perfect God and perfect man, as also the Council of Chalcedon hath promulgated, end quote. But again, it did not say that the two natures were without confusion. The two wills were also affirmed, and the th third Council of Constantinople, but again, without citing that crucial phrase, without confusion. Since this question of confusion had been extensively cited by the Council of 754, the Second Nicene Council in 787 left itself especially vulnerable in failing to answer the charges made, and in its reaffirmation of the six ecumenical councils, in avoiding so critical an aspect of their faith. It recalled minor aspects of past councils, such as the condemnation of the fables of Origen, Evagrius, and Didymus in the Fifth Council, but, while coming close to the Chalcedonian statement, sidestepped the crucial question. Confusion was now the Catholic faith. And although in the West, the Council of Frankfurt, 794, and the Convention of Paris, 825, were hostile to icons, the veneration of images became identified with the faith in the West as well as the East. The battle in Christendom was to be the warfare of church and state in their claims to represent the divine continuity on earth. 
the redivinization of earthly orders was in process. Section 21. The One and the Many. Meanwhile, through asceticism, heavily imbued with Hellenic thought, a non-Christian concept of sin made increasing headway. Evil came to be seen as the willful attachments to things temporal rather than things eternal. The non-Christian attempt to save history by divinizing it had again become a flight from history. The Christian doctrine of creation, by denying divinity to man and by making time rather than eternity his earthly habitat, had made history central to man. The universe, time and man, had been created by God, and the time of their end would eventually come when the time should be no more. But meanwhile, history is important precisely because it is determined by the omnipotent and sovereign God, and is an area of valid secondary causes rather than fortuitous events. Because the universe and history are created by the triune, absolutely self-conscious and self-sufficient God, it is totally predestined and governed by Him, since nothing can be unknown to Him or exist apart from His decree. Hence, the world of time and space cannot be an atomistic and meaningless world of independent particularity. Neither can it be a world with its own independent universals and plans, because it was created in total accord with and in terms of the plan or the universal of God. The one and the many, the universals and the particulars, cannot exist in history in independence of God or in independence of one another. They are interdependent upon one another since they are from a common and equally ultimate creative act, and hence they are both derivative from his decree. In God, the one and the many are equally and absolutely ultimate. History, therefore, is completely meaningful. Not a sparrow falls, not even a hair, from Matthew 10, 29 to 30, apart from this total decree. History and man are rescued from the blind alley of the absolute particular, to use Van Til's phrase, <coughs> and also from the meaningless ocean of undifferentiated being, from the abyss of unity in the chaos of being. According to Van Til, quote, the ontological trinity will be our interpretative concept everywhere. God is our concrete universal. In him, thought and being are coterminous. In him, the problem of knowledge is solved. End quote. This biblical doctrine has been extensively compromised, and it was to be subjected to further attempts to fit it into a Hellenic mould. Its impact was nonetheless great, and its course of influence and sway only just begun. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce 
including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.